This episode is about one of the fieriest descents of all time, but it's also about descent generally and how it's more important than ever. It's about how a woman who became a symbol of descent and a man famous for his take-no-prisoners opinions were able to maintain a friendship despite their vast differences. It's an episode about finding common ground, but also about using differing opinions to sharpen your thinking. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're taking on United States versus Virginia. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. There is one Supreme Court justice who, perhaps more than any other, is famous for dissents. Her face, or more aptly her jabot, that's the lace collar she wore over her robe, has become synonymous with the word. She's so famous for dissent, you might even say she's... But in this episode, dear dissidents, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or the notorious RBG, is not the dissenter. One of her closest friends, both on the bench and off it, plays that role. We're speaking, of course, about the great Antonin Scalia and one of his most vigorous dissents of all time in United States versus Virginia. RBG actually wrote the majority opinion in that case, meaning Scalia's dissent one of his most scathing ever, was directed at none other than his bestie, RBG. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start at the beginning, and in particular with Justice Ginsburg, because her majority opinion in this case was years in the making. In fact, her entire career sort of led up to it. Act 1. RBG. Joan Ruth Bader was born in 1933 in New York City and lived a life devoted to advancing equality before the law. She was one of just a handful of women in her class at Harvard Law School and said she felt like every move of hers was being watched, like she had to choose every word carefully because she was representing women everywhere. When her husband Marty got a job in New York City, the future Supreme Court justice asked whether she could complete her third year towards her Harvard Law degree at Columbia Law School instead, but the dean said no. So she simply transferred to Columbia and became the first woman to be on two top law reviews. She graduated from Columbia first in her class. At first, much like her contemporary Sandra Day O'Connor, she had difficulty finding a job. She would later explain there were three strikes against her. She was a woman, she was Jewish, and she was a mother. But she later thrived in academia and eventually left to build a women's law project at the ACLU. It was here that she pioneered a brilliant strategy to tear down the patriarchy. We asked her longtime friend and frequent interviewer to tell us about her early career. So I'm Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Jeff is also the author of RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Love, Liberty, and Law. So when uh, RBG was co-founder of the American Civil Liberties Union, starting around 1972, she tried to persuade the Supreme Court that legislation that seemed designed to benefit or protect women could have the opposite effect. And the genius of her strategy uh, was to choose to represent a series of male plaintiffs who'd been denied legal benefits who were designated for women. Uh, This was a visionary strategy, both because it appealed to the often 
chauvinistic, uh, we call them sexist uh, judges of her time. And also because it forced the court to articulate a standard of scrutiny for gender discrimination that could be applied neutrally to either sex. Her strategy was based upon the belief that laws that draw lines on the basis of sex always operate invidiously against females, even if intended to help them, placing them not on a pedestal, as she would later say, but in a cage. So she brought a series of cases aimed at paternalistic laws, many of which made their way to the Supreme Court. For example, she challenged a law that gave an automatic exemption from jury service for women upon request, but not men. One of her first cases to reach the Supreme Court. Here's audio from her argument. Mrs. Ginsburg, you may lower the lectern if you would like. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. You can hear her there lowering the microphone. Though she be but little, she was fierce. Though Jackson County jury panels are dominated by men, the Missouri Supreme Court said that the right affected... That is, a defendant's right to have a jury with a cross-section of his or her peers. ...is unimpaired. That reasoning in two key respects is topsy-turvy. First, the right central in this case, the right secured by the Sixth Amendment, is the criminal defendant's, here, Billy Duran's right to a fair chance for a jury genuinely representative of the community's complexion. And second, the vaunted woman's privilege viewed against history's backdrop simply reflects and perpetuates a certain way of thinking about women. After she concluded her argument, then-Justice William Rehnquist commented, You won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar. (laughs) Speaking of her talent as an advocate, Jeff remarked, She didn't like to lose. She she always said, you know, when, when she talked about the sexism that she experienced as an advocate with judges making condescending comments. And I, I said, well, how did you not lose your cool? And she paused as she always did and said, well, I wanted to win my case. She was also a brilliant writer. In Craig v. Boren, a lawsuit challenging an Oklahoma law that had a lower drinking age for women than men, she wrote a masterful amicus brief. She noted that although the law was intended as a compliment to women because they allegedly behave better than men, Quote, upon deeper inspection, the discrimination is revealed as simply another manifestation of traditional attitudes and prejudices about the expected behavior and roles of the two sexes in our society. Part of the myriad signals and messages that daily underscore the notion of men as society's active members and women as men's quiescent companions. It just so happens she had an argument before the Supreme Court the same day that Craig v. Boren was argued. She was challenging a law that made it more difficult for widowers to obtain Social Security benefits than widows. Here's a clip. Hi. Mrs. Hader, may I interrupt for a Did you hear her correct Potter Stewart there? Slay. You've cast it as anti-female discrimination, anti-female wage earner discrimination. It could be equally cast as anti-male beneficiary discrimination. But in any event, do you think there's any constitutional difference? The line drawn here, like virtually every gender discrimination, is a two-edged sword. It works both ways. Because uh, some of the opinions of this court and other courts have, uh, when they've seen anti-female discrimination, have relied uh, for their constitutional decision upon the history of anti-female discrimination. There's been no such history of anti-male discrimination, I guess, as a matter of historic fact. 
caused most anti-female discrimination was dressed up as discrimination favoring the woman. I know that, but she, the courts, through help of advocates such a view, as you have been able to see through that, haven't they? <laughs> the point is that the discriminatory line almost inevitably hurts women. Well, my question is, if this were purely an anti-male discrimination, and let's assume it were, would you have as strong a constitutional argument in your view? My argument would be the same, because I don't know of any purely anti-male discrimination. In the end, the women are the one the ones who end up hurting. Yes. Could I, could I interrupt just to be sure I understand your position in response to Justice Stewart? Is it your view that there is no discrimination against males? I think there is discrimination against males. Now, if there is such discrimination, yes. is it to be tested by the same or by a different standard from discrimination against females? My response to that, Mr. Justice Stevens, is that almost every discrimination that operates against males operates against females as well. Is that a yes or a no answer? I just don't understand you. And I, are you trying to avoid the question? Or? No, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm trying to clarify the position that I don't know of any line that doesn't, that doesn't work as a two-edged sword. Like many civil rights lawyers, RBG's role model while working at the ACLU was none other than Thurgood Marshall. Her model was Thurgood Marshall, uh, she often said, who used um, a similar strategy in arguing Brown v. Board of Education. When he founded the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, he also pursued an incremental strategy. First, he represented African-Americans who'd been denied access to segregated law schools before taking on segregation and other public institutions that affected more people and were um, even more hotly contested. So uh, RBG was inspired by Marshall's example, and she also decided to move incrementally and she understood that, that the judges of the 70s were more likely to identify with male plaintiffs. In 1980, after a very successful career as an advocate, she was nominated to the Federal Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And it was here that she serendipitously met Jeff Rosen in an elevator. They quickly bonded over one of her dearest passions, opera. No, no, notorious. So I first met Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1991, and I was a young law clerk, and we met in an elevator. She was coming downstairs from a jazz class called Jazzercise. It was uh, the early 90s, and I was going up, and she was completely silent. And you can imagine that it was kind of intimidating to be in the elevator with this silent, formidable woman. So to break the ice, and because I couldn't think of anything else to say, I blurted out, what operas have you seen recently? And I didn't even know that she was an opera fan, but I am. And it turned out that was exactly the right question to ask, because of course she was too. And that just began uh, what became a 25-year conversation about music and law. And it was among the luckiest encounters and most meaningful relationships that I've been, that I've had. Act two, Fast Friends. It was also at this court that she became close with her colleague, then judge and future Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. So began a friendship that would last the rest of their lives. On the D.C. Circuit, she met uh, then judge, as they say, uh, Antonin Scalia. And they, too, bonded over opera. <laughs> uh, she loved 
music and so did he. And they developed a great friendship. Um, he and his family would come to uh, RBG's apartment at the Watergate for New Year's uh, for many years. And after the dinner, they would sing around the piano. Scalia was an enthusiastic singer. He said he was part of the really famous three tenors. And they maintained this great friendship. We asked another guest who knew both justices well about the many commonalities between these two seemingly different people. I'm Christopher Scalia. I'm uh, one of the children, the eighth child of Justice Antonin and Maureen Scalia um, and co-editor of Scalia Speaks and On Faith. Well, the the most famous shared interest uh, between them was opera. Uh, they both loved opera and would would attend the opera together and were actually in operas together uh, on, a, I think, a couple of occasions um, in Washington, made kind of cameo appearances uh, on the stage. But they also liked wine. I think Justice Ginsburg famously. Chris is referencing when RBG famously fell asleep at the State of a Union address and had this to say about it. The audience, for the most part, is awake because they're bobbing up and down all the time. <laughs> And we sit there, stone-faced, sober judges, but we're not, at least I wasn't, 100% sober because before we went to the State of the Union. <laughs> and my, um, yeah, my, my father, I think, was, was also, I don't know if he was quite a connoisseur, but I think they, they shared bottles together. And their spouses were friends, too. Marty Ginsburg was very close to my mom. And they are both very good cooks. Marty Ginsburg was basically a gourmet chef. And my mom is a very good cook, but I think uh, she was still in awe of of Marty. And, you know, my father liked to eat. So that that worked out well for everybody. And they would, every year, they would have a a New Year's party, the Ginsburg's hosting. And Marty was, uh, he was basically the the main attraction, his, his elaborate gourmet meals towards the end of the night. And they... Those parties went late. I mean, I would be home before my parents on New Year's. It made me feel like a real slacker. But um, so those are, I think, kind of some of the, the obvious things they had in common. And then they also had, uh, th- they both, I think, had similar approaches to writing that helped them click early on as colleagues on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. The way Justice Ginsburg tells the story is that when she was on the court before my father, and most of the other judges there didn't really like it when you gave them kind of editorial feedback on their opinions, telling them ways they could phrase things better or bolster their arguments. Uh, but my dad liked that sort of thing. So that they had that in common. And then more subtly, I think they had, they had similar backgrounds. They were New Yorkers of about the same era. She was a few years older than him and not from the same boroughs, but I think they were probably kind of familiar to each other when, when they met already. And I think in, you know, in ways they, they overcame obstacles in, in the legal career, in their become, getting to where they were. Obviously, uh, Justice Ginsburg's obstacles are, are well known in that she was a, a woman in a male-dominated field and, and had many obstacles to overcome there. She was also Jewish, which probably made things trickier uh, for her and over the course of her career early on, especially. And my father, you know, I, I don't want to say it was the same thing, but I think it was comparable that that he was an Italian Catholic. Um, and I think people tend to forget um, that that Catholics, I think, 
you know, as many as we have on the Supreme Court now, it was not always so. And I think that they, they kind of certainly might, yeah, they would have kind of recognized those not shared barriers, but uh, comparable barriers. Then Scalia got a very important promotion in 1986, and he left the D.C. Court of Appeals for the Marble Palace. But even while serving on different courts, RBG and Nino stayed friends. When he was on the court, it would have been the early 90s, so he was on the court and she was not yet on the Supreme Court. She was still on the D.C. Circuit. And it was her birthday and her, I guess her clerks had organized a, a celebration for her and different, different people gave roasts. And my father's roast was, was, was pretty funny, kind of teased her for some of her habits and, and some of her personality quirks. Uh, he teased her about how, how seldom she laughed. But uh, by the way, she said that one of the, the only two people who ever consistently made her laugh out loud were her husband, Marty, and my father. So that maybe that's another thing they have in common. But uh, he was teasing her for different reasons in this toast. But at the end of the toast, it's, it's very moving. And he just says, basically, you're a great friend and a great colleague, and I miss you. And of course, he had no, he had no way of knowing that they would be colleagues again uh, just in a, in a few years. Uh, so it's, I think, a beautiful tribute. And I think that emotion was unchanged by, by the end of uh, his life, certainly. As it happens, Justice Scalia may have been instrumental in getting RBG nominated, according to Jeff. Around the time that President Clinton was deciding who to appoint to the Supreme Court, I was a writer for the New Republic, and I went to have lunch with the law clerks for the D.C. Circuit, and they told me that a few weeks before, Justice Scalia had been to lunch. And at the time, the leading candidates on the shortlist to replace uh, Justice Byron White were Mario Cuomo and uh, Lawrence Tribe. Uh, RBG, amazingly, was not at the top of the list. Uh, she was viewed as too moderate or too incremental by some progressives, um, some of whom also uh, didn't like the fact that she criticized Roe v. Wade for not going, uh, for, for moving too quickly although she thought the result was unequivocally correct. As she said repeatedly, she thought the court should have just struck down the extreme Texas law in the case without spelling out a, a, a broader system of, a, of regulation of abortion throughout pregnancy. So at this lunch, the law clerk said, uh, someone asked Justice Scalia, if you had to be trapped on a desert island for the rest of your life with Mario Cuomo or Lawrence Tribe, who would you choose? And he replied without missing a beat, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I reported that story in the New Republic, and Justice Ginsburg told that story at Justice Scalia's funeral, and she added, without missing a beat, after just a few weeks, the president chose me. So now our soprano and tenor were reunited on the nation's highest court. And from the get-go, their differences, not just in terms of judicial philosophy, but in terms of demeanor, were apparent. From the start of his tenure, Scalia was outspoken, issuing thundering dissents. Speaking of the famed solo dissent in Morrison versus Olson, one of Chris's favorites of his dad's opinions, Chris said, "It was, I think, such a brave dissent because he was he was on his own, and it's not like he was the only conservative on the court at the time, but he was he was still on his own, and he was it was pretty early during his time on the bench too, so it was still he'd only been on the bench a few few years at that point. At the beginning of her tenure, however, RBG was not so outspoken." It was only later on that she would become no, no, notorious. Here's Jeff. 
There was a change around the time that Justice John Paul Stevens retired in 2010. Uh, Justice Ginsburg then became the senior liberal associate justice, and that gave her the opportunity to write the majority opinion when she was in the majority and the, the chief was in dissent, or to assign it to the justice who best reflected her views. And she also said that when she became senior associate justice, her vision of her role changed. And with that sensitivity to her role, and she was always very aware of her role as a judge, she felt emboldened, liberated, uh, responsible to express her views as forcefully as possible. And it was after 2010 that you began to see the dissenting opinions that made her famous it's important for listeners who know her as the notorious RBG to realize what a transformation it was for for most of her career when she was uh, on the DC circuit and even in her early years on the Supreme Court. She was viewed as a judge's judge, uh, an incrementalist, a minimalist, uh, a moderate, and she always insisted, of course, that she she didn't change. She she just felt that her role changed, but it was meaningful and inspiring for her friends and admirers, to see her able to speak in her own voice, free to express her views so forcefully using that extraordinarily forceful and particular language that distinguished all of her opinions. And uh, the rest is history. United States versus Virginia, though before this transformation, is one of RBG's most important opinions. It is also a case where her dear friend and excellent dissenter became one of her most vociferous critics. Act 3. I respectfully dissent. 30 years ago, a female high school student complained to the federal government that the Virginia Military Institute, known as VMI, didn't accept women. To be fair... No one expected that many women would want to attend VMI. The public military-style university had been founded to provide training to men who were gathering armaments left over from the War of 1812, and it employed a rather unique educational method. VMI's system of education combined physical rigor and mental stress to create citizen soldiers. New cadets were called rats, and the training was extremely physically and mentally demanding, intended to take them to the brink of what they could handle. That being said, it sought to produce well-rounded graduates, graduates that were imbued with love of learning, confident in the functions and attitudes of leadership, possessing a high sense of public service, advocates of the American democracy and free enterprise system, and ready as citizen soldiers to defend their country in times of national peril. The school was known to produce talented and loyal graduates, many of whom would go on to occupy influential positions in Virginia. When reporting on the case, Jeff visited the VMI grounds. And here's how he described it. Josiah Bunting, the director who I uh, liked very much, um, very um, former Rhodes Scholar and novelist uh, and uh, aficionado of classical education. And I asked him what it felt like to be presiding over what we all expected would be the end of a 156-year-old tradition of all-male education at VMI. And he gazed out the window and he said, wistful, plaintive, adjectives like that. It's like the adagio section of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, Death in Venice. And there's a wistful quality that comes from the fact that those who go here really love it and adore it. They realize that once it's gone, it can never be recovered. Then he spoke in Latin. He said, nescit vox, missa, reverit, 
The voice which sent can never be recovered. This is a singular place. It's quiet. It has nothing to do with the excesses of right-wing caricatures. Um, so, you know, far from being a kind of uh, general patent type, he was a, a very reflective educator. Uh, he, he had me sit on one of his uh, humanities classes on, on war, politics, and leadership, and he stressed that it was a place for uh, timid boys who were not comfortable exploring their gentler sides to write poetry and reflect on the role of leadership. So in those senses, it wasn't what I expected. But on the other hand, in, in other senses, it was very much, um, it was even even more um, adversative than expected. It literally looked like and looks like Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, uh, VMI's setup, as Jeremy Bentham imagined it with a central inspection house or inspection tower where guards uh, concealed by Venetian blinds can gaze at cadets in their rooms, which have no windows or doors and are pierced by light at all times. And at all times, the, can, the cadets can be observed by the guards, but the guards can never be seen by the cadets. And Foucault, in his famous book, uh, said that this was the very expression of the modern exercise of, of power, surveillance power, um, unknowing observation. And, and VMI was built on that model, and it and it looked like the Panopticon, and, and the cadets were indeed ordering each other around and saying, you know, to your knees, rat, and, you know, to 50 push-ups and so forth. And they were, it was, it was very adversative indeed in that respect. And then at the same time, there were these sensitive poetry readings and General Bunting's history seminars. So it was just, it was fascinating to see it. At trial, Virginia argued it had a valid interest in the immense benefits of single-sex education. And it said that excluding women was necessary to achieve these benefits. If women were let in, the state said, the whole program would have to change. The benefits would be destroyed. The trial court judge upheld VMI's single-sex program on this basis, ruling that the program furthered the state's interest in providing a diverse array of educational programs. The Fourth Circuit, however, reversed, saying that under the Equal Protection Clause, denying women an educational opportunity afforded to men was not a legitimate way to further that interest. In response, VMI sought to remedy this constitutional problem by creating a VMI for women, except... It wasn't VMI at all. It was called the Virginia Women's Institute for Leadership, and it was set on the campus of Mary Baldwin College some 30 miles away. The school not only lacked VMI's unique, adversative educational method, it lacked the prestige and storied history. Well, what's so remarkable uh, all these years later is that in 1996, when I went out to visit VMI and V-Will, which was the separate and, and very much unequal alternative college that Virginia had set up to try to avoid integration, the outcome wasn't obvious. So that's why the state went to such lengths to try to avoid having to integrate VMI and created this sort of Victorian collaborative military academy for women called V-Will, which I had visited as a young reporter in 1996 during, the, during its brief time of existence. And it was just a, a fascinating snapshot of, of, of history, this effort to create military drills and exercises that were encouraging rather than adversative, uh, set up in the very beautiful grounds of a Virginia college, but patently unequal to VMI in every respect. For example, VWO women only wore uniforms on days they were participating in ROTC, were not issued arms, and their living accommodations were vastly different, with locks on the doors and more privacy. 
the school lacked many STEM classes and fewer faculty had PhDs. Salaries were substantially lower and the average SAT score of students at Mary Baldwin was 100 points lower than that at VMI. The district court once again approved the school's plan. And this time, the Fourth Circuit agreed. The case was then appealed to the Supreme Court. The opinion of the court in two cases, number 94-1941, United States against Virginia, number 94-2107, Virginia against the United States, will be announced by Justice Ginsburg. The decision was 7-1. to one. Justice Thomas was recused uh, because his son went to VMI, and Justice Scalia wrote one of his more uh, memorable vociferous uh, dissents in a long line of memorable and vociferous dissents. But before we get to the dissent, here's RBG reading her majority opinion from the bench. Our reasoning centers on facts that are undisputed. Some women, at least, can meet the physical standards VMI imposes on men, are capable of all the activities required of VMI cadets, prefer VMI's methodology over VWILs, could be educated using VMI's methodology, and would want to attend VMI if they had the chance. If most women would not choose VMI's adversative method, many men, too, would not want to be educated in VMI's environment. The question is whether Virginia can constitutionally deny to women who have the will and capacity, the training and attendant opportunities VMI uniquely affords training and opportunities the VWIL program does not supply. Defenders of sex-based government action must demonstrate an exceedingly persuasive justification for that action. Under this exacting standard, reliance on overbroad generalizations, typically male or typically female tendencies, Estimates about the way most women or most men are will not suffice to deny opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description. To cure that violation and to afford genuinely equal protection, women seeking and fit for a VMI quality education cannot be offered anything less. We therefore reverse the Fourth Circuit's judgment and remand the case for proceedings consistent with this opinion. Jeff observed that the overarching conclusion of Justice Ginsburg's opinion is that individuals must be treated as individuals, not simply as members of the groups into which they're born. RBG had so many powerful insights. And one of them, she, she often would say in other contexts, generalizations about the, the way men and women are cannot reliably guide me in making decisions about particular individuals. I love how she also says, you know, certainly the state doesn't say that this sort of um, education is suitable for all men either. Regardless of whether generalizations hold true, they don't hold true for individuals. I think about that a lot. People say, well, you're trying to erase differences between men and women. And I think about how RBG said, men and women are different, but not all women are the same. And I just find that so powerful. It is so powerful. It's such a inspiring assertion of her faith in the individual. And that was so crucial to her achievement as an advocate RBG also noted the circularity of the argument that excluding women was necessary to achieve the state's goal and that integrating women would destroy the character of the school. 
As the Department of Justice had noted at oral argument, such a justification would justify excluding racial minorities from VMI merely because it would upset the current method of learning. Less, she tried to give real teeth to the level of scrutiny given to sex-based laws. Maybe more teeth than the case law allowed. She was a masterful strategist, uh, always, and it was very important to her that she stated the state's justification for excluding all women from citizen soldier training for which some are qualified cannot rank as exceedingly persuasive. Remember, the ordinary test for a gender-based classification is that it had to be substantially related to an important governmental objective. But she quoted the Mississippi and Hogan case, uh, which had used the words exceedingly persuasive justification and imported that into the test for gender discrimination. And and Chief Justice Rehnquist objected that she'd slightly ratcheted up the standard of scrutiny. And she she did what she could. She she never, she, she was always disappointed that as an advocate, she almost but didn't quite get five votes for strict scrutiny for gender. Justice Brennan was with her along with uh, three other justices, but not, there weren't five. And VMI was was her chance to just ratchet up the standard a little bit, always by building on previous decisions. So she was a lawyer's lawyer uh, to the end. And, and for her, it was so meaningful to quote and cite and build on all of those important victories that she'd had and to bring up the standard for gender discrimination as high as possible. Of course, a high standard for gender discrimination favors individual men and women who want to break the mold. It makes it difficult for the state to rely on generalizations that can favor women purportedly as well as harming them because as Justice Ginsburg often said that you know it can look like a pedestal but in fact be a cage. So it's a very individualistic vision of equal treatment feminism. Um, it, in, in her, it, at every stage in her career, her clarion vision was challenged by people on the left and the right who didn't embrace her classically liberal individualistic vision of each individual's opportunity to fulfill her own potential or his own potential. Uh, but Justice Ginsburg embodied it and stuck by it, and America is better for it. Jeff noted that for being such a vastly important decision about something deeply personal to RBG, it's a measured opinion. Even VMI, which I think she felt was one of her most important decisions, was a majority decision, is not written with uh, crusading passion. It's a, it's a quintessentially RBG opinion, deeply rooted in precedent, citing other people's opinions, and always meticulously building on the uh, building blocks of law that she had established as an advocate and was able to bring together as justice. The dissent, by contrast, was not so measured. Uh, yeah, he didn't hold back there either. Scalia began. Today, the court shuts down an institution that has served the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia with pride and distinction for over a century and a half. To achieve that desired result, it rejects the factual findings of two courts below, sweeps aside the precedents of this court, and ignores the history of our people. He continued, Much of the court's opinion is devoted to deprecating the closed-mindedness of our forebears with regard to women's education. 
closed-minded they were, as every age is, including our own, with regard to matters it cannot guess, because it simply does not consider them debatable. The virtue of a democratic system with the First Amendment is that it readily enables the people over time to be persuaded that what they took for granted is not so, and to change their laws accordingly. That system is destroyed if the smug assurances of each age are removed from the democratic process and written into the Constitution. So, to counterbalance the court's criticism of our ancestors, let me say a word in their praise. They left us free to change. The same cannot be said of this most illiberal court, which has embarked on a course of inscribing one after another of the current preferences of the society, and in some cases, only the counter-majoritarian preferences of the society's law-trained elite, into our basic law. Since it is entirely clear that the Constitution of the United States the old one, takes no sides in this educational debate. I dissent. There are some great Scalia-isms throughout. He accuses the majority of politics smuggled into law and using a do-it-yourself approach to fact-finding. At one point, he says, it is not too much to say that this approach to the litigation has rendered the trial a sham. And he repeatedly laments what he sees as the end of public single-sex schools. Justice Scalia would have deferred to the several state experts who found that single-sex education does, in fact, have benefits and would have allowed exclusion of women to serve that purpose. Though the majority had said this was a unique case and that other publicly supported or private schools might be a different story, Scalia concluded, The only hope for state-assisted single-sex private schools is that the court will not apply in the future the principles of law it has applied today. That is a substantial hope, I am happy and ashamed to say. After all, did not the court today abandon the principles of law it has applied in our earlier sex classification cases? He ended the opinion by noting that, whatever could be said of the majority's opinion, it does not leave VMI without honor. No court opinion could do that. Here's Chris. I think it's a good originalist dissent, um, but he also looks at the consequences and, and what, it would, what the majority opinion would mean. So, I mean, I, he wasn't, you know, it's fair to say he was not results oriented, but even if you're not a results oriented justice, it, it doesn't mean you can't try to shake people in recognizing the, the logical conclusions they're drawing and the, the kind of unavoidable consequences of uh, th that the opinion will lead to. And I think that's where that's an especially powerful part of, of that dissent. Chris also noted that the dissent was very authentic. I think that's one of the reasons I love reading his writing so much is because it just, it sounds like he spoke too. I mean, he was a very articulate person um, and a very funny person, a great storyteller, a great joke teller. And I think that, uh, I think those traits come through very, very clearly in his, all of his opinions, probably especially his dissents. And he, he even wrote about that. I mean, dissents are the most fun to write because you don't have to, it can be your voice solo. But, but yeah, that's when you encounter my father in his opinions, you're kind of coming close to what a conversation with him would have been like. Not, not to say every dinner table conversation was extraordinarily intellectual and intense, but we all love to argue at the dinner table and some of his ways of arguing and, you know, tactics and uh, things like that, th that I experienced at home, I see in the opinions too. It's, it's a lot of fun. Justice Scalia, it turns out, gave Justice Ginsburg an early draft of his dissent because he wanted to give her adequate time to respond. How did she react? 
It absolutely ruined my weekend at the Second Circuit. <laughs> but my final draft was much improved thanks to Justice Scalia's searing criticism. I mentioned this to Jeff and he responded, Huh. She never took any of his invective personally. And Justice Ginsburg said she was always careful not to engage in that kind of invective, but she didn't let it uh, rattle her. And the fact that that was the spirit in which she took it and made my opinion better is so typical of her. There was one crucial life lesson she received from her mother, uh, which she told often, and that was this. Overcome unproductive emotions like anger and remorse and jealousy. They are not productive and they will distract you from meaningful work. And this was the wisdom of the ancient Stoics and of Greek and Roman moral philosophers, and in fact, of the Enlightenment philosophers who inspired the founders' understanding of the pursuit of happiness. I never asked her where her mom got it, but she must have gotten it. She was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, either in her Eastern European education or in her deep reading. Her mother was such a reader that she once broke her nose on the streets of the Lower East Side because her she was buried in a book and she walked into a wall. That's what a reader and intellectual her, her mom was. And she distilled from this classical tradition the importance of overcoming unproductive emotions through emotional self-discipline and RBG imbibed that to every fiber of her being, and she deployed that wisdom when confronting Justice Scalia's dissent. Yeah, I read elsewhere she once said that her advice for a good marriage was to to be a little deaf sometimes, and I, I think that's the same idea, right? You tune it out, tune out the unproductive uh, uh, thoughts, or or don't take anything personally, kind of the same theme. To it is, it is, and it's, um, it's the deep wisdom of the Ancients, and it's much easier said than done. Of course, you know it's it's the greatest spiritual challenge that anyone can have. But but she achieved it more completely than any human being I've I've ever seen. She just didn't allow anything to distract her from focused, productive work or meaningful, thoughtful, empathetic interactions with those with whom she was interacting. She she just every moment of the day was was used in total focus. And at least in one small part, it was Justice Ginsburg who got the last laugh. Here's Chris, who observed an error in his father's opinion that was not lost on Justice Ginsburg. So, footnote four. The court, unfamiliar with the Commonwealth's policy of diverse and independent institutions, and in any event careless of state and local traditions, must be forgiven by Virginians for quoting a reference to the Charlottesville campus of the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia occupies the portion of Charlottesville known not as the campus, but as the grounds. More importantly, even if it were a campus, there would be no need to specify the Charlottesville campus, unlike university systems with which the court is perhaps more familiar, such as those in New York, for example, the State University of New York at Binghamton or Buffalo, there is only one University of Virginia. To many Virginians, it is known simply as the university, which suffices to distinguish it from the Commonwealth's other institutions, which include Christopher Newport College, Clinch Valley College, the College of William and Mary, and of course, VMI. This is a great footnote, I think, because 
it's showing it's my father's way of kind of showing showing off his superior knowledge of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And also because, you know, he begins that footnote by poking fun at their ignorance of Virginia and their carelessness of state and local tradition, which is kind of part of his larger argument anyway. But my father makes a mistake here. There, he mentions Clinch Valley College. Clinch Valley College was actually a, I hate to be the actually guy against my own father, but is actually a branch campus of UVA. It's now called the University of Virginia's College at Wise. And in fact, I used to teach there. I was a professor there for eight years and Justice Ginsburg knew this. So at my father's memorial in 2016, she mentioned this footnote and teased him a little bit about it. Uh, so it was kind of a postmortem roast a little bit, but she pointed out that, that in fact, UVA did have a branch campus and she was, it was kind of defending her, her majority opinions reference to the, the campus at, of the university in Charlottesville. So I get a kick out of that footnote. It's not really terribly significant to the case overall, but it's these little personal details that, that I sometimes enjoy with these uh, opinions. She also got the last laugh about one other small thing. Here are Justices Ginsburg and Scalia discussing the VMI opinion together in an interview. Remember that the chief voted for my judgment? I know. Not your dissenting opinion? (laughs) Jeff noted. Justice Ginsburg was extremely pleased that her chief, as she called him, Chief Justice Rehnquist, concurred with her. And she always celebrated the fact that she had brought him around. You know, he had voted against her when he was an advocate, but he came around in the gender cases. And I asked her, how did you persuade him? And she said, as long as one lives, one can learn. The chief had two daughters. He had two granddaughters, maybe more granddaughters, but two from his oldest child. I think he was devoted to the girls. When his daughter Janet divorced, I think he felt that the girls, her girls, needed a male presence in their lives. And nobody saw this. Nobody who came to the court and saw the chief would ever appreciate how devoted he was to those two girls and how much they loved him. Isn't that striking that 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 was her response when I said, how did you bring the chief around? And she said, well, it was his experience of bringing up these two uh, granddaughters. And she always focused on individual relationships and actual people. She was so extraordinarily attentive to the details and nuance of how these cases affected people's lives and how people's own lives were changed by their own lived experience. And that amazing attention to detail, the thoughtfulness about the marriages and divorces and kids and grandkids of her clerks, her friends, her colleagues, all combined with her extraordinary legal vision, brilliance, acumen, and astonishing work ethic, created a unique combination that helped make her one of the most important advocates of gender equality of our time, all combined with this shining vision of what she called a more embracive constitution that would embrace the previously left out people, as she told me, not just grudgingly, but with open arms. It's so inspiring. Act four, legacy. (laughs) 
So what is the legacy of the case? Certainly, it plays a crucial role in the canon of equality cases. It stands for the notion that equal protection protects the right of individuals to be treated free of stereotypes. Jeff noted. She quoted in VMI the Weinberger and Weisenfeld case, which was one of her favorites, um, for the proposition that the state must not rely on overbroad generalizations about the different talents, capacities, or preferences of males or females. And she refused to accept the idea that someone who didn't fit the mold of either gender should be denied an opportunity available to someone of the, of the opposite sex. Very, very inspiring part of her legacy. Yeah, I think she says, oh, sorry, I think she was quoting a song, but um, I don't remember now, but uh, that equal protection doesn't protect groups. It protects your ability to be you or me. I think that's a nice right. way of... Uh, free to be you and me. I, I, she would quote it to me too, because it was a uh, kid show on PBS from when I was a kid and her kids are my age. And she watched it as a mom in the 70s and would quote the song. And it is a beautiful sentiment. But there's also a broader legacy, a legacy of civility, respect, even friendship among two people who disagree deeply, a friendship not in spite of differences, but perhaps because of them, said Chris. I think it's kind of surprising to me in some ways that it's surprising to other people, only because I think most people do have close friends who disagree with them politically. The difference with Nino and RBG, or the notorious RBG, if we're going by, you know, the fan nicknames, no, no, notorious. is that they, they were legends and kind of totems for their respective, I guess, sides of the aisle, uh, if you want to describe the court and political terms. And so it's, it seems incongruous for people who kind of symbolize different approaches or to this to being a justice on the Supreme Court could still get along and still be friends because the people who admire these people respectively have a hard time imagining they could respect or love anybody who respects the other. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe that has something to do with it. But I also do think part of part of the reason it's surprising is that maybe part of the problem is that we do think of the court in political terms. And we, we shouldn't. I think it would be harder for politicians to be friends with each other because you have to campaign against the other side. Uh, Supreme Court justices don't have to campaign. They don't have to demonize their opponents, you know, every couple of years or every six years or every four years to, to win an election and to sway voters. They need to argue forcefully and consistently and clearly but, you know, as my father said, and as Justice Ginsburg uh, liked to say herself, they, they argue against ideas and not people. As Scalia himself said about RBG. You know, what's not to like? <laughs> Except her views of the law, of course. <laughs> and Jeff added. It is remarkable that people are surprised by their friendship, which was based on a shared love of music and laughter. He made her crack up, but she said sometimes he'd say things and I had to pinch myself to stop laughing. And why shouldn't two people who shared a love of music and food and culture and laughter 
be friends because they disagreed. I don't. I think the thought would never have occurred to her. It is a sign of our times that people are surprised by the idea that people who disagreed uh, with each other uh, could be such close friends because um, they were united not only by a love of music and laughter and and Marty's excellent cooking, um, but also of the Constitution. And that's why Justice Ginsburg loved the opera Scalia Ginsburg so much, written by Derek Wang, the young composer and former law student who was inspired by the Desert Island story and imagined a world where both of them were trapped on a desert island and the only way they could get off is by agreeing on a common constitutional philosophy. And they sang arias and various pitches and we did a performance of it at the Constitution Center and I had the joy of playing Name That Tune with her as listen, listening to her character coming out from the music of Carmen and Scalia singing a lot of Puccini. But her favorite aria was the last one, We Are different, we are one, um, united by, well, here, here's the lyrics, we are different, we are one, the U.S. contradiction, the tension we adore, separate strands unite in friction to protect our country's core, this is the strength of our nation, this is our court's design, we are kindred, we are nine. That was very meaningful to her, and she thought it was urgently important that people who disagreed could be united by their shared love of the Constitution and of the court, and they were. she was devoted to the court as well, and he was and they were friends. The legacy of the interplay between the majority opinion and the dissent is not only that civil disagreement is possible even in these divided times, but also that if we look hard enough, we can find common ground with nearly anyone. And we should look hard for similarities because they're there. Scalia was the first to acknowledge those similarities. We agree on a whole lot of stuff. We you know, do. Ruth is really bad only on the knee-jerk stuff. She is, <laughs> she is. Perhaps the case's legacy is best summed up by a story Chris told us. I hadn't heard this story until I read the introduction to uh, The Essential Scalia, but shortly before my father died, with, with, within a year before his passing, Judge Sutton visited him in his chambers. It also happened to be Justice Ginsburg's birthday. And every year my dad got... Justice Ginsburg gave her a dozen roses, and this year was no different. So he and Judge Sutton were talking, and some background, Judge Sutton uh, clerked for my father, um, and he's now a federal judge himself. They were talking, and my dad ended conversation by saying something like, well, I, I have to go. I have to go uh, bring these over to Ruth. And Judge Sutton jokingly started teasing him and saying, oh, Come on, why, why do you even bother with that? What, what good does it do? When, when was the last time she ever voted with you on, on anything important? And my father replied, some things in life are more important than votes. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Okay. Cancel us. Pull the plug. All right. Ready? Grant, say action. So great to... 
wonk out on RPG with you. <laughs> <laughs> Act one. RPG. EHS. And APB. This episode is about one of the fieriest, fieriest, fieriest. That's kind of a hard word. Fieriest. Fieriest. Okay. Yes, the decision was eight to one. Justice Thomas was recused because his son went to VMI. So, so sorry, it was so, so that would have been seven to one, right? Right. Sorry. You're right. Now, are you an opera fan yourself? I'm not. Uh, I don't hate it, but I'm not, I'm not a fan. I am a music fan, and I think I, I generally inherited my, my, uh, my father's uh, um, passion for music, but not necessarily the same, uh, same genre. I mean, the closest I'll get to opera is uh, the Who's rock opera, Tommy. Tommy and I, I don't think my dad would was a huge fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, notorious, notorious. Grant is like, kill me now. Uh, Okay. Okay. Act one. Oh, sorry. Act one. (laughs) I think we're overthinking this. Okay. Okay, fine. By we, I mean you. Okay. (laughs) All right, all right. Their living accommodations were vastly different with locks on the doors and more privacy. Oh, good. And I missed an and. I mean... With good reason. Ladies need privacy. It's just I'm different. sorry if that is. <laughs> it's just different. It's not. Yeah. They don't. Well, that's the point. Some women might not. I mean, I think women overall do, but some women wanted to go to. Some women want to like do their private lady things out in the open in front of everyone. It's not. The, why is it out in front of everyone? It's just more privacy. Because the way the dorms were set up. People could watch the rats. <laughs> only, I think they were separate from the men's. It was like only women watching women. Anyway, the whole point is well, why they is it changed only women a lot of this women? and it didn't, it didn't like affect the school, you know. As you might suspect, I think Scalia had, he was right on a few things. <laughs> I don't think he was right on this, but you know, there we have it. Scalia Ginsburg, Slattery Bowden. Here are Justices Ginsburg and Scalia discussing the VI. Oh boy, Ginsburg guys! Earlier, <laughs> she also she also got the last laugh about one other small. Okay, now I'm moving around. Okay, <clears> oh, <throat> deep wisdom of the ancients, come to me. <laughs> okay, <I don't> <clears throat> ready? Grant's like, well, f- you. We're recording. <laughs> don't on. use that as a blooper. Elizabeth Slattery does not <laughs> does not curse. I know it's funny that you are like the cursor out of the two of us on this podcast because I'm in real life probably the bigger offender. I need a bleep button. <laughs>